Welcome to the UP Tech Talk podcast special series on the future of education. Talking about likely scenarios for learning in both the near and distant future. Our guests for this series include both UP faculty and guest academics and futurists from across the United States. Look out for new episodes in this series on the first Friday of every month during the fall semester. We talk with our guests about a lot of fascinating topics that are sure to spark your imagination. We invite you to continue the conversation on social media by following us on Twitter at UP Tech Talk. And make sure to join us at techtalk.up.edu or by searching for UP Tech Talk in iTunes for our regularly scheduled UP Tech Talk episodes, where we explore the use of technology in the classroom one conversation at a time. Welcome to another special episode of the UP Tech Talk podcast. This is Ben Kahn from the Academic Technology Services Department at the University of Portland. Today I'm joined by my co-host, Maria Erb. Hello, Maria. Hey, Ben. And today we're so happy to have with us here in the studio live in the flesh, (laughs) Professor David Turnbloom, (laughs) who is a professor of uh, theology here at the university and uh, specializing in an area called liturgical sacramental theology, um, but in so many words, someone who is an expert and studies ethics as a field. David, <laughs> thank, thank you, you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to be here. David, we're, we're so glad to have you. We, as, um, as I've mentioned before, we're doing this series on the future of learning, and we've been talking with futurists and people that are really thinking pretty deeply about what we might encounter in the next, say, 30 to 50 years. And what keeps coming up for us is this central question. What does it mean to be human? And especially in the face of just what looks to be an in- inevitable change in in what we currently think of as a, what a human being is. So we're really glad that you can join us today and we can really kind of probe that question a little bit more. Um, well, as we started off uh, mentioning that you you are an ethics scholar, and that's certainly something you think really deeply about, why should we teach ethics to begin with? Yeah, well, that's a really good question and a, a, a difficult one, I think, um, especially when it comes to trying to understand what people say, well, what's the value that you're going to be teaching? Clearly, when people think you're teaching ethics, well, it must be that you're going and espousing particular values. if you teach ethics at a Roman Catholic university, well, clearly there must be a set of values you're teaching. And the way that I approach it, I want to step back when it comes to education about ethics. And it's very much, for me, um, an opportunity to get students to think about the genesis of their values. In other words, where did they come from? Rather than trying to begin with saying, which one's better than the other? Which one do I need to be a crusader for? And which one do I need to be vilifying at every you know, with every breath I have, we'll stop and think, where do these beliefs come from? Why do we have them? Um, and for me, that's the interesting question when it comes to ethics, because it's rather than trying to say, well, my education, the education that I have needs to be so clearly connected to my next action, that the education is only helpful insofar as it's instantly usable, um, you step back and say, well, let's think for a minute, just about where these come from. Don't worry about acting. Ethics is always about acting, acting, acting. Well, no. Let's think about where the values come from. Let's analyze that carefully and kind of do this deconstruction of our own value systems. And 
from the standpoint of liturgical sacramental theology where I'm studying rituals, that's very much what it is. It's what are the practices, um, the behaviors that we embody on a daily basis that slowly give us these values that we have. Um, and so it's so important for me to say that we need to teach ethics, not just because we need to have answers to the difficult questions that are coming up, absolutely, that's something we want to do, but also so uh, that we can patiently analyze where our values are coming from, be more aware and be able to describe what it means to be a human being um, as a way of then helping us understand, well, how do I go about living out to that identity as a human being? Um, so for me, that's, that's an important part of the ethics education. It's not just, well, let's jump into a class where we're going to talk about all the hot-button issues <laughs> that are going to be exciting for everybody. It's, why is freedom good? Let's go ahead and just think about why it is you like that. Where could you have gotten that value from? And have students analyze their own past and their history and think, where do my tastes come from? Um, and that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. But that's why I like teaching ethics, is it, it challenges people to really turn inward, which is not a place you think when you think ethics first. Um, but from, especially from a theological ethics standpoint, it is turn inward, you know, figure that out because that's where your actions are going to come from. Do you get a wide variance in your students as they start thinking a little bit more deeply about where, where their particular beliefs come from? Um, yeah, I mean, everybody... And that's why I try to drive home that point that I couldn't really get anything but a wide variance in where they're coming from. Uh, because if the, if the goal is really to pay attention to the uniqueness of your history, your context, well, anytime I was like, oh, yeah, I completely agree with that person or I completely agree with that person, I kind of lose it in the classroom. I'm like, don't ever say the words completely agree. That's never actually happened before between two people. You can have agreements, but there's differences, and let's pay attention to what they are and why your experience is different from that person's experience and why your values then are different and why you think, oh, I love freedom. Sure, I love freedom too. But yet they mean com two completely different things and they get at their histories and why they mean different things. Um, it's, it's wonderful. I end up, at, especially my intro classes, I end up having most students at the end of the semester answering the question, who am I? Who am I becoming with oh man, I don't know. <laughs> you know I've, I, I thought I did and now it's this this state of being very curious about who they are, and that's really what I want to get to, is less give me a positive answer and more give me an awareness of your limits. Give me an awareness of, you know, the fact that you are a question that's being worked out slowly. Um, and that, to me, is kind of the beginning of being an ethical person. It's less solid convictions and more cautious curiosity, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting because you study these kind of ancient uh, traditions or rituals just to think about the sense of permanence that those kind of represent to us as human <clears throat> beings. And you'll see kind of things like that sprinkled into like sci-fi or something, like someone's on a battleship in outer space, but maybe they have some sort of um, something that seems like an anachronism that they're kind of clinging to, and that really grounds them uh, and makes us understand that they're still a human character. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I'm just curious, like, do you, do you think about what these kind of rituals that you study will look like in f 25 years and 100 years? Oh, absolutely. Um, especially the liturgical theology, uh, the people that 
do liturgical theology, what they're focusing on are the history of these prayers and these rituals. And so the more you study the history of ritual, the more you realize the plurality and the evolution that is just shot through all of them, right? There's really nothing that Christians have been doing forever in the same way. There are things that we share in common, right? Bread and wine tend to get used quite a bit, uh, but certainly not in the same way all over and over and over again. Um, so the research that I do now is very much focused on how should we be paying attention to the ways that these do change um, and the ways that they must change depending on what culture you're in, depending on what the particular um, ethical dilemmas that are of importance in that particular place, well, that's going to change the way in which we need to form our rituals. So within theology, there's the term, you know, to reform the liturgy. The 1960s Second Vatican Council changed a lot of the ways that rituals were done. That's reform, and that was trying to meet a particular need. And so it's absolutely a matter of, well, how are these rituals technologies in many ways. It's a, they're, they're types of tools that are literally teaching people how to be people. And so the way that we do them means a lot, and they have to change. Um, so, Well, a lot of the rituals, you know, have to do with becoming an adult in a, a, a society and a culture, um, you know, obviously the big sacraments of getting married and, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. So those I mean, the the need for those probably won't change, right? We're always going to need rituals around those big events. But are you saying more like the, I don't know, the, the sort of what you use in the ritual or just like the context of the ritual and things like that will continue to change and evolve? Yeah, it will. I, and the way in which people understand initiation rituals, the stages at which those should occur, um, what that should involve are always being connected to other cultural rituals that we have. You know, if you um, are a religion teacher in an Italian neighborhood in Boston in the North End, right, the way in which those people are concerned about how that ritual of confirmation or baptism should play out is just going to be different in many small ways, but in some significant ways than perhaps if you were teaching that same population in another place with a very different culture, right? People's expectations come not just from the rituals, but from all aspects of their culture, and they're trying to kind of work them out for themselves within a a particular ritual behavior. And so many people want to say, well, we need to make sure we have uniformity to these rituals. We want to control them in particular ways because they are so powerful. But, you know, to me, the beauty is is the diversity, is is the little intricate differences that we tend to overlook and think, oh, that's ornamental, doesn't really mean much, but it can have so much influence on the way in which I see the entire world. You know, that little action that meant so much to me growing up can completely change the way in which I view my relationship to my family or to my friends, and we don't look at them enough, and that's kind of my ethical project is to go, Describe your rituals to me. Where did you come from? I have students write essays like that. and Describe how they've influenced and changed those rituals as they go on. So they'll describe Sunday night family meal that they were forced to do. And then, you know, they were so angry that that happened to them and they hated it so much. They just wanted to go with their friends. But now, everybody writes this, now looking back, I'm so thankful 
for that I was made to do that because now that's who I am and it taught me to value certain things and that absolutely they, they chronicle how they've changed it as they've gone along and how they've added their own flavor to it and that's just them describing what tradition is what ethics is um, and so it's it's great to get to learn from them about their values I, I learn a lot about just ritual just listening to them chronicle it themselves um, and that to me is the beginning of that question who are you and how are you going to behave in this world yeah it's so interesting I mean I think a lot of people think about these kind of rituals as being like ancient and, and um, unchanging but it's just interesting to think about given enough time or enough distance even someone doing the same thing even if it has some of the same core themes to it might also strike you as being like uncanny valley it, it's just different enough and strange enough that it's unfamiliar or, or feels strange yeah definitely I, I mean uh, right now I'm teaching a course on uh, the theology of Christian worship, and it started off with one of the students describing having gone to a non-denominational Christian church. That's all this person knew, but then they went to a Roman Catholic, and they were just standing there like, this is so odd. Everything is so strange and feels so weird. Um, and I feel that, too, when I go, like, recently I went to a parish I had never been to before, and they, a Roman Catholic parish, even in and during the Alleluia, they did certain motions with their hands that I had never seen before and mm -hmm. immediately struck me as, well, this is a little silly and weird. <laughs> and then I watched as they did it, and certain people were clearly very connected with this. This action meant something to them, you know? And unless you experience it, you're never going to be able to understand it. And I explained that just, you know, if you don't speak Spanish and you sit down at a table of people who are just speaking Spanish, you're going to be very acutely aware of the fact that you are an outsider, but the more you sit there and you dedicate yourself to that thing, um, that way of seeing the world and speaking, the more you'll understand it and it'll shape the way that you relate to those people and to the world around you. So the changes, not only are they okay, they're ultimately inevitable and it's a matter of learning to go, that strange thing that's new, let me just sit with it for a minute rather than making the ethical judgment immediately. Let me embody it, let me feel that, let me listen to it, and see what experience comes out of that. See what relationship comes out of it. And then we can talk about making some type of ethical judgment or evaluation of it. But let me at least know what I'm talking about, literally, <laughs> first. Yeah, I kind of feel like this sort of way of looking at things is, is at odds with sort of the quick snap judgment that we almost demand in in so many situations, right? We want somebody to step up and know, you know, that this is clearly a right course of action or this is clearly not a, a course we want to take. You know, we kind of want that. But that doesn't um, sort of what you're saying, it, it, I mean, to even get to that point, even if that's a yeah. desirable thing, doesn't well, I mean, happen very quickly. Go on Facebook anytime. Every day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just like in terms of people making Snap like these kind of grandiose and oh, empir yeah, yeah. empirical yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. moral uh, proclamations. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't seem to be a lot of room for nuance kind of in the right. <laughs> yeah. online yeah. world. It's there, but there's just so much stuff out there. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's so easy for someone to just jump online and put whatever soundbite mm -hmm. they want out there. And mm -hmm. this is why I think certain religious traditions and philosophical traditions lend so much to the ethical 
you know, project because the project of ethics and understanding it because they, it's about slowing down mm-hmm. and turning inward, paying attention to experiences right. and knowing that being aware of your humanity um, will help make you aware of other people's humanity and it allows you to pay attention to well, what is it that's going on in them that's being worked out slowly. Right. Um, and so there is this slowing of the pace of judgment that happens. But again, as you pointed out, it there are moments from our day-to-day lives where I have to do something now. I have to stand up and, and, and say something. I have to speak. And I think that there's always in me going to be a sense of I could be wrong with what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. But at this very moment, um, because I've paid attention to what's going on inside me because I've made this habit out of ethical reflection, right? This is why the examination of conscience that, you know, religious people have done for centuries of at the beginning and beginning and ending of every day, Mm -hmm. examining your motivations, examining your feelings. That's just going to make you into the person who knows how to do ethics, who can think and make those decisions more clearly. And it doesn't feel like some purely reactive, instinctual decision every time you need to make something. You will have formed yourself into the type of person who makes good decisions. So you have to worry less about how to make good decisions. Um, And that's what I think spiritual, uh, different spiritual practices give us that gift of learning how to become the person who makes good decisions. And then in the everyday moments where it's, well, I got to make a decision, you can trust more so that, well, you're going to be acting out of motivations that you trust. Yeah, that's that's a really hopeful thing. And um, it makes me feel really, well, uplifted to think that we could create a whole batch of people doing this, you know, <laughs> and moving forward to, to, to make decisions in those contexts would be wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially given probably the very difficult decisions that are that are going to be, you know, coming up on the horizon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the other part of the the theological background. The theological approach to ethics is that I think is so important um, that I learned from my study of ritual is is the importance of asking for help, the importance of acknowledging one's imminent imminent rather imminent failures because you're going to keep failing as a human person and it seems you know a lot of christians can get you know like get made fun of for oh just so guilt-ridden right? just <laughs> so self-critical all the time like just let go of your guilt um and there's absolutely something to be said about that it can be overdone but at the same time when it comes to these ethical decisions i think we can learn from it it doesn't make it's it's wonderful to as a group of for instance um, a, gr- a group of people to get together and talk about how they're very against racism and that should be done um, but unless that same group of people can start off that conversation by saying that they are embodying racism that they are failing that there's a way in which white supremacy cuts through their society in a way that they're perpetuating even though not wanting to but they do it unless they can say that out loud well how is it that you're going to actually move forward going that way? So for me, the theological ethical approach is so helpful because it's it starts off with some of those insights of let's be honest about who we are. 
let's be patient and look at ourselves and not just project some ideals we wish were the case. Um, and that whole introspective, patient, inward-looking approach allows people to say, well, yeah, I don't always do so well. So let's figure out where do I go from here. I think that's an interesting transition because you've really talked about ethics as coming from within um, and, and less of like an absolute prescribed kind of way, mm-hmm. more of almost a continuum yeah. of understanding um, and based really on humanity and, and embracing your, your faults and your humanity. Um, so we want to kind of move into like that futuristic kind of landscape where how do we know who is human and who isn't when we have implants and artificial intelligence and all these kind of things that are sound like science fiction now but uh-huh. you know are increasingly coming closer and closer into focus mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> so what's the question <laughs> just like what how how do you know who is or what does it mean to be a human i guess yeah oh see so these are those the questions that that's one of the core um, questions of our core curriculum for theology is who am I and who am I becoming? Mm-hmm. And the other one is who or what is God and how do I relate to God? And these are the questions that we build our, especially our theology, introduction to theology course, Theology 105 around. And so implicit in those questions is kind of the impossibility of offering the perfect answer. And for me, this idea of well, what is a human being it for, I can I can offer examples of how I experience it, right? And it very much is for me this this idea of being a question. I experience myself as a question that's kind of oriented outward towards the universe. This is coming very much from the theology of Karl Rahner, amongst others. But um, and that to me is what drives how you're going to approach the future. What am I going to be doing? as I go forward, um, and all these questions of what is a person get more and more and more complicated. Um, And it can seem, I think, for so many people incredibly overwhelming. Like, well, if I can't answer that question, what is the Archimedean point on which I stand to act? And this approach of turning to the subject, right, of saying, well, let's just stop and rather than trying to define all people, let me sit down and look at my own experiences. and try to understand that as my beginning point, right? Um, and so what is a person going forward? What am I going to look like? Well, once I get to that point tomorrow, I'm going to ask myself this question again. And whatever changes have happened, I will go ahead and reassess them. And then the next week and, you know, once I get my first few chips that will get implant, implanted into my brain that allow me to access certain data, I don't know what that's going to do to my experiences or what it's going to be like, but once that happens, the next day I'll, sh- I'll be sure to take a half an hour to sit down and think about it. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> but just to set that side of time to go, well, these are the questions that, for me, it is that turn inward and make sure you have to carve intentionally carve out time to sit down and think about these things because, to put it frank, they're not going to get worked out in philosophical journals. The philosophical journals and the theological journals will continue to write and will continue to think about it, and that's a huge important part of discovering what a human person is. But to be a human person is really just to be living out that everyday experience and trying to pay attention to it as you go forward and trying to pay attention to others. I mean, 
everything I've been saying, like you pointed out, was very much oh, ethics comes from this inward turn, and it does, but it comes from expressing that and sharing it with others and then listening to other people's as well, um, to what their experiences are like and noticing just how different they are and so that limits our own experiences. We have to be aware of the limits. Mm-hmm. So you can't just go, well, this is what I feel, and therefore it's universal and I'm going to act out of it, <laughs> you know, absolute conviction. No, let me listen to other people's experiences as well. Um, so, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> but. No, I think that was definitely just in keeping with what you've been talking about yeah. so far, just kind of ethics not being an easy or fast kind of process. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I feel with this kind of, like you said, the emphasis on uh, turning inward and slowing down and that reflective, introspective mm-hmm. format that, you know, we almost associate with life in a monastery or life in definitely a religious community yeah. um, and teaching college students how to do that mm-hmm. is, is a great thing. But I'm wondering, you know, moving forward with all of the, the really complex landscape and, and also the, just the time pressures and the increasing competition that's mm-hmm. probably going to be a part of life. Um, it seems like you'd have to lay an awfully strong foundation to, to kind of resist a lot of, a lot of the pressures. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that those types of pressures have always, have always been there for people. I think there's a certain pace to life that perhaps compounds them now, but I'm, I have to think more about that. But, um, yeah, you do have to lay a strong foundation. And this is fresh in my head because uh, I was just teaching this, but the end of the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, right, Jesus says everybody who does these things that he's just laid out for three chapters, right, lives these ways and embodies these habits will be like a house that's built on a strong foundation, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's cultivating a habit, a way of being, that allows you to have that foundation that when all of these changes come, when all of this these tragedies occur around us, it's not like they're not going to affect us or not shake us to our core in certain ways or really challenge who we are, but there's a sense that we'll have a foundation out of which we can then act and slowly change. That that foundation provides us with a real sense of conviction, hopefully a sense of community, um, from which this fascinating and terrifying future um, comes. So as we face that future, it's a matter of just keeping up that foundation Um, because that's the thing about that sermon. It's pointing out habits that you need to do, right? Do these particular things. Treat other people this way. Focus on your, your interior motivations. And the more you do these things, well, that's who you become. And so... Yeah, things get, things will continue to get more and more complicated. Um, you can't look at Facebook or turn on the news without being inundated with impossible questions. Um, and I personally am one of those people who's very prone to getting close to that despair, you know, where mm-hmm. you think to yourself, what could I possibly do? Um, and this is why especially virtue ethics for me, the, the tradition of Christian virtue ethics is so important because it is the little things you do on a day-to-day basis. It's not these great, grand-scale, um, self-sacrificial, huge actions that 
make one an ethical person. It's it's the little things that you can will yourself to do on a daily basis that create that foundation. And when I look forward to the future and see, you know, the impossibility of the tasks that lie ahead of us, it's well, bit by bit, you know. Uh, yeah. So. I mean, I think we talk a lot, especially Maria, because she's a big pessimist, <laughs> uh, about the challenges that are, are coming from technology. <laughs> Sorry, Maria. Uh, about the challenges and how it just seems so overwhelming and so crazy. Um, but I think technology, you know, it acts in both ways. Like, yeah. at the same time as we're kind of like under the yoke of globalization and thinking about what it means for the future of our country and our economy and our, our uh, citizens... Um, you know, it also lets people kind of act in these hyper-local ways that really weren't possible 20 years ago. I mean, like in the wake of um, just all the horrible stuff that's been going on, and I mean, this podcast is going to air probably a little bit down the line from our mm-hmm. recording date, but um, just in the wake of some of this horrible, I'm sure like in two months they'll have new horrible stuff to yeah. reference and think. But yeah. anyway, um said some friends kind of get together on Facebook and like send a group message out, kind of connecting this like web of people that were kind of connected through a couple different friends and organized just um, like a trip to volunteer at like a soup kitchen mm-hmm. on a weekend. Yeah. And so I just think it's important to note like all the good stuff that does come out of it, all the, the people that are able to be like, hey, you know, I have like a Facebook group for people that like football or whatever, and someone here, you know, has cancer and let's get a GoFundMe set up <coughs> to help them cover their medical bills. Yeah. Just all sorts of, of good things that, that can come out of it and, like, the good that people can Absolutely. show. Yeah. Well, and it, for me personally, so if I have uh, – my mother has multiple sclerosis and she's in a wheelchair, and it gets increasingly harder for her to get to a church to embody these rituals with people. But there are – I mean, to talk about using technology to help people find these places, these communities where they're going to be able to support one another through facing these difficult times – there are entire communities of, of uh, churches that exist in virtual reality. People make up their own avatars and they go through worship services that are just at this virtual space. And for people who have certain disabilities and can't get to those communities, you know, worshiping in these um, areas to me is absolutely no less real than me going to a chapel on Sunday mm-hmm. and sitting next to people. It's absolutely different. It does different things. Um, but technology provides that space in a way that's that's wonderful. So it does a lot of positive things. But I also think one of the positive things it does, rather than the, the kind of the nicer things that you listed of, you know, creating community, doing these things, I mean, um, without the Facebook live stream, you know, yeah. that you, you can have horrific things broadcast to people mm-hmm. that, you know, it's the violence in our world, especially some of the um, racially motivated violence that we have, is not new. It feels new, but it's the technology that's new. It's the phones and the cameras everywhere that allows mm-hmm. us to see these horrific things. Um, and I think that that's an incredibly good thing. It doesn't make anybody feel good, but to begin having these conversations, um, to begin accurately getting a picture of what society looks like, these technologies are allowing us to do that. Um, 
And that goes back to my point earlier about how do we start Mass at the Christian church? Well, one of the first things we do is talk about our failures. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned. And there is a real way in which our technology is helping us see the ways in which we sin, putting it in front of our faces, making us feel uncomfortable. And that is part of being human. The more we create societies that try to allow us not to feel uncomfortable, that, that to me is a real problem because we're forgetting who we actually are. And that's a reason, another reason I have a big problem with Facebook, right, is because I can, I can self-select for who's going to make me feel comfortable and who's going to make me feel like I'm a saint. Mm-hmm. Um, get rid of that voice because it doesn't affirm who I am, even if perhaps the way I've been behaving doesn't deserve affirming. Um, but I still don't want to hear that. So it, it can cut both ways, I think. That gives me pause. But, but absolutely, um, the technology is allowing us to, to understand ourselves in ways that I think we've never understood ourselves and to grow in ways in which we have had trouble growing in the past. <laughs> so, Yeah, that's an excellent point. I must say in a moment of self-defense, I do not <laughs> consider myself to be a pessimist. You're a realist. Well, well I mean, no, realist. no, no, no. Well, well, I may have a vision of the future that is somewhat darker than yours, Ben. Um, no, part of the reason I wanted to do this series was I wanted to hear some very convincing arguments for how we can create a future that's different mm-hmm. from the past. And I'm starting to hear things that really resonate with me that, that are making me feel hopeful. Mm-hmm. So I'm very grateful to you <laughs> for bringing up some of those things because I desperately want to be convinced okay. otherwise. Yeah. I'm having a moment of reflection, and I, I you, now ben. feel sorry for, uh, yes. <laughs> for what I said to you. Thank you, Ben. Apologize. <laughs> Ask forgiveness. <laughs> well, let's see. Did we did we ask our most of the big questions we wanted to ask? Um, I just want to make sure we cover because he's really given us a lot of yeah. We've got a lot of good wonder, stuff. Wonderful, wonderful. I tend to points drone on and on and on. Um, so hopefully, you no. Know, I feel like oh, oh yeah. Here's the one the one question I want to ask. You know. Um, I do feel, and we've talked about this with some of our guests, that, you know, people tend to want to be smarter and stronger and better than they are, right? They they usually, I think they would willingly swap out body parts or pieces of them if it would give them this, this sort of end. And I feel, I just wonder, are we just planting the seeds of our own self-destruction for this desire in the first place for kind of just better than human yeah and i think that that term desire is the the important one there um the way you just described it the thing that comes crashing into my mind is uh the second creation story in genesis 2 through 3 um some people father michael himes who's at boston college particularly taught me this that one way of looking at the original sin that happens in this story of Adam and Eve seeing this forbidden fruit um, that they're not supposed to have and this serpent coming up to them saying, no, you're not going to die. You will be like God if you have that. And they go, ooh, mm, that looks good. And they take that. And so one way of looking at that is, well, what's, what's the desire that's happening there? And 
sure, perhaps it is to be like God. Perhaps it's there's disobedience that's happening. But another way of looking at it is they didn't believe that they were good enough. Mm. And that to me is one of the things, right? Because right before that we have in the story, right? God creates human beings in God's image. God yeah. sees that it's good, right. right? God creates things in the way that God wanted them and they're good. Even if we look at ourselves and think, nope, that's not good. I need to be stronger. I need to be smarter and better. And whatever we think that stronger or better might be, whether that's somehow being able to recall information faster because faster is somehow better, or stronger is able to move something more easily by myself without help, you know. Um, So the thing that I worry about is that not so much what do I want, but why do I want it? Where does the desire come from? Because if it comes from this belief that I'm not good enough to begin with, that's really the problem. I think that that's going to then drive and uh, a thirst that is never going to be satisfied. And some people go, that's right. That should, that's what it should be, right? This unending prog- progress of just it's always getting better and better and better. And any cursory look at history will show, no, it doesn't just always get better and better and better. Um, and so the point is pay attention to what it is that drives the desire. Because if it's the desire for you to somehow be better because you're not good enough yet, stop. Think about the ways in which you are good enough. And the things that you want to improve upon, well, what is it that you want to actually improve in the world? Is it perhaps somebody else's suffering that they're being dehumanized, right? The dignity that they have is being denied to them absolutely let's come up with some ways to make that better let's come up with some ways to you know um, improve that person's situation but if the genesis is just "Mm, this isn't good enough I want to be better just because well I would say spiritually speaking from a theological ethics standpoint what you need to do is start by appreciating step back look at what is good about you learn to see the beauty in what is around you and then learn how to perpetuate that beauty all the more. If technology is there to fill the lack in God's creation, I think that what we're going to end up building our idols. If technology is there to magnify the beauty in creation, well, then I think we're doing a human thing. Um, so that's, yeah, how I would respond to that. Unbelievable. Cannot top that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. That, that was just great. Yeah. Should we wrap up there? Yeah. Anything else you want to I'm just speechless now. <laughs> Seriously. Oh. It's really good. But I'm glad. Yeah, it's hard to follow that up. That's yeah. Shallow. No. I mean, thank you for those parting so let's words. Plug your book. <laughs> really great. Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. L- let's do Let's Let's talk about your book. Oh, sure. So, um, I have a book coming out in the spring of next year, uh, I think around March, called Speaking with Aquinas, um, conversation, A Conversation About Grace, Virtue, and the Eucharist. That's kind of the subtitle. Mm-hmm. They're still working out a little bit, but Speaking with Aquinas is definitely the title. Yeah, I like that. Uh, liturgical Press is uh, going to be publishing that, and it looks at uh, the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas and how he understands the relationship between the Eucharist and how we live our lives. So the virtues that we want to embody and how that connects to the way in which we worship. So that'll be coming out in the spring. And if you're interested in 
Eucharistic theology, hopefully, will be something that is thought-provoking. It sounds thought-provoking, yes. Well, thank you again for being our guest. Thank you so we much. We really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, David. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this special episode on the UP Tech Talk special series on the future of education. Heard something that made you think? Continue the conversation on social media by following us on Twitter at UP Tech Talk. And make sure to join us at techtalk.up.edu or by searching for UP Tech Talk in iTunes for our regularly scheduled UP Tech Talk episodes where we explore the use of technology in the classroom one conversation at a time.